This is the Blatcast, a sometimes fast-paced but usually meandering look at the world. Who's the captain won't cop out when there's things you're all about? Set. Right on. You see, this cat chef is a bad mother. Such a mouth. I'm talking about chef. He's a complicated man, but no one understands him but his woman. John Shaft. Kick back, get ready for quite possibly the longest one hour to perhaps the shortest two hours and 56 minutes of your life. And now, here's Christian Blatt. Welcome to the Blattcast. Joining me now is our th- author, Mark Robowski, has a fantastic new book that's now available, Black Moses, The Hot Buttered Life and Soul of Isaac Hayes. Welcome to the show, Mark. I appreciate you taking the time to chat today. Oh, thanks for having me. So, uh, you know, early in the book, you talk about how there wasn't really a biography on Isaac Hayes uh, prior to this. And I was kind of wondering if you had a feel for why that was and what it was about him that drew you to this. You know, you've done quite a few uh, biographies, music, non-music. But uh, what was it about Isaac that made you feel like, well, I'm going to be the one to rectify the fact that uh, that Isaac Hayes does not have a a, not documentary but a biography yeah and i probably thought i'd be the last guy in the world to (laughs) wind up doing yeah right yeah i mean i'm a you know guy from yonkers new york grew up on top 40 am radio um you know i've done many music books but when you look at you look at the black music culture and how it grew i where where you know and I've asked this before, <clears throat> where are all the black music writers? I'm, I, you know, I was very puzzled about this. Maybe they just, they're just like a lot of the music performers through the years who have kind of forgotten who hoisted them on their shoulders, basically. They never would have made it without Isaac Hayes. I mean, or, or, or Barry White or, you know, even Sam and Dave, who Isaac wrote for and produced with Dave Porter at Stax. Where were where are these where are the biographers? <laughs> yeah, and you know I looked left and right because I didn't want to do a book if, if one had already been done and maybe overlooked and it was a good book. But there's and 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 someone in the New York Times actually wrote a wrote an article about Isaac when he died and said the same thing. Like you might remember him from Soul Man and Shaft and and, and you know South Park Chef, but you've never read you've never read where he came from and why he did, how he did what he did and the circumstances of his life in a book before. And it puzzled the writer. And so that sort of spurred me. Um, And then I found out basically, you know, a a lot of these entertainers just have not been done. I have a book I just finished on Bill Withers, which will be out next year called Ain't No Sunshine. And they're basically, we're in parallel universe, same time frame, basically, early Mm -hmm. 70s. Uh, and then they fell out of favor, but they influenced music so greatly that it actually changed pop pop culture. It changed mainstream culture, which had always wanted to be, you know, wanted black music to, music to be a part of it. 
but black music was never the dominant strain of it until guys like Isaac Hayes and Barry White and Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder in the 70s start, you know, start doing their, their stuff. So I just figured, listen, I, 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 I've done a lot of books, maybe 35 books, something like that. A lot of black artists. I mean, I did a book about Little Richard, did a book about Otis Redding, which is basically out of the same gene pool just a little earlier. And in fact, uh, Isaac Hayes got his start playing piano as a 17, 18 year old at Stax on Otis on an Otis Redding session and then played for Otis again through the years. So I just figured, you know, let, let me get some, I mean, I did three Motown books, you know, Temptation, Stevie Wonder and the Supremes. And I'm a great fan of soul music. Sure. And I never considered myself an expert in it until <laughs> I actually wrote this book and learned things I never knew about soul music. And it's carried over, carried over into the Bill Withers book. And I'm still learning things about it. And if I'm still learning things about it, what about all these people? What about all the, the rappers and the hip hoppers, you know, and, you know, these people who sample Isaac Hayes because they know it's, it's it, his groove was so infectious but they never really knew who he was other than chef on South Park because they're young guys. This is, yeah, how culture, well, this is how culture changes from almost year to year. It's very tragic in a way. And I mean, I, I looked up online. There's a, a website that tracks samples uh, on, you know, samples taken from original songs and then used in hip hop and rap songs. Check this out. Isaac Hayes at, Isaac Hayes had 237 covers of his songs, wow. but there were 1,511 samples of his tracks, 1,511. And I, if, if you ask me how many of those 1,500 knew Soul Man, or yeah. even Shaft, believe it or not, which is one of the great moments in music pop culture history, I don't even think they would know that. This was the point that that New York Times writer was trying to point was trying to point out also, and so I just figured, listen, all right, let me jump in the pool, and it's as you say, it's a quick read, yeah. but it's a very deep. The meaning is very deep and profound to me because I, as I said before, this is when black music began to overtake white culture, and everybody wanted to sound black in the early seventies. You know, all the white artists, and then they started singing soul songs, you know, Hall and Oates and, you know, people, Billy Joel. I mean, people people would, would would come out with soul music, white artists, the Bee Gees, you know, yeah. and that the whole thing changed. It became, black music became American music in the 70s. It's fascinating. And then in the 80s, it started breaking away from the mainstream the way it had in the, in the 50s and 60s. And, you know, it became almost you know, you didn't know who did the music that established a lot of these acts, uh, like Michael Jackson. I mean, he's he's like a Stevie Wonder clone and Prince, you know. But it just it just started growing apart from the mainstream. And you know, in the seventies, black music, black musicians is the first time they were able to win Grammys or even be nominated for Grammys as popular on the uh, as popular artists pop the popular charts and billboard instead of just the r b chart right they became like stevie wonder and marvin Gaye and isaac hayes and barry white they became music and yet if you look back from the 80s on they become they become almost decentralized in hip-hop and rap and once again 
the pop chart has very few black artists. This is how history repeats in music, and it's not a good thing. I mean, I always, I always, you know, considered what how black artists were misused in the fifties, not getting, not getting their royalties, and and you know, not getting recognition, and basically retiring broke and dying young and broke. I consider that rock's original sin, and a lot of music people still won't admit it. You know, the music label people still will not admit this is this is what we did to black mu black musicians in the fifties. So you know maybe I, maybe this book will be a little bit of a you know break back a little bit of a learning experience and give people a greater perspective about what they're listening to on music because if if Isaac Hayes is sampled a thousand fifteen you know fifteen hundred eleven times there's a reason for that and people should know. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, for me, it definitely, the book definitely was uh, in education and a lot of things, because to me, uh, I'm 46. So to me, Isaac Hayes was two things. He was the guy with the great song about the black private dick who's a sex machine to all the chicks. And second, Chef on South Park. And what an amazing character that was. And just sort of like reading about, you know, sort of getting into that and, you know, just the songs that he would do that, you know, I haven't gone and rewatched some of those episodes that aired when I was in college, but just thinking back and just how fun a character he was and how he fit into that, it seems, you know, and, it, and what I really appreciated was, I guess, his son, uh, Isaac Third talking about, you know, what that meant to his dad and, and how, sort of the the way that he parted from South Park, it, it felt like that was Scientology people, handlers, you know, just sort of put out a message on his behalf because he was not going to be somebody who was going to be offended by, you know, making fun of a religion, especially after, I don't know, he'd been on that show for like 10 or more seasons at that point. Right. So uh, I found even the part that I knew about him, I didn't know as much about it as I thought. You know, my impression was, sort of what the way that was reported when it happened, you know, and there was this brutal episode where they killed off his character, you know, and it was, <laughs> it was a little sad as you reference in the book, you know? So uh, to your point, I knew a little bit sort of about his background, but I didn't know how involved he was in building up Stax records and to your point about Stax records and the record industry just not just Isaac not getting paid for his work, but how nobody seemed to have gotten what they deserved, you know, because they had a deal with, I think, Atlantic through most of the run of Stacks, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, Ahmed Erdogan did all right on some of those records, <laughs> but uh, the guys, the guys in the building at the Stacks building didn't seem to do as nearly as well. Yeah. Well, he did af after. Atlantic screwed stacks something terrible. Yeah. It's one of the, it's one of the most tragic, brutally tragic stories of of a small record company being being taken over and destroyed by a big New York company. You know, and Atlantic Records was great, but they were they were they just used stacks like they couldn't, until they had enough, until they figured the trends were changing, and then they just like stabbed them in the back. They they had a thrown into the original contract, which was like 4.3 million when they took over Stack, um, into, the, into, the, into the agreement that they would own all those Stacks masters in perpetuity. Yeah. They would own them forever, even if the arrangement ended and Stacks was, you know, was broke free of Atlantic. Atlantic and Ahmed and Jerry Wexler and all the lawyers, 
Man, a lot of lawyers. <laughs> they owned all that music. And Isaac, until his dying day, never saw this. Is, you're not going to believe this, but until his dying day, never saw royalties from Soul Man because they were all owned by Atlantic, which even when they dumped stacks in 1967, owned those masters and continued to release them without any input from Ike whatsoever or anybody else. But the thing of it is, Ike was the richest guy, probably richest maybe person, period, black or white, in recording because of what he had, what he had wrought in the early 70s when he the Hot Buttered Soul album, the Black Moses album, and all those gold, he had six gold gold albums. They they treated him like a, a king. It's he actually was a king later on, <laughs> you know, um, but at Stax, he was the man. After Otis Redding's death, he actually, he actually saved Stax from doom. Stax deserved doom. I mean, I say that not out of any kind of spite or, you know, brutal instinct, they misran their, that company terribly. The reason they were taken advantage of by Atlantic is because nobody at Stax knew a damn thing about the about the record business. Isaac Hayes was he never was paid by Jim, by Jim Stewart at Stax. He was paid by Dave Porter, who was his writing partner, who was making like fifty bucks a week. Right. This was a Smokey Robinson of Stax Record. It was making like fifty <laughs> bucks a week. It was only when he they teamed up as a, a songwriting team and started having all those hits for Sam and Dave and threatened to leave Stax. In fact, they did leave Stax for a few weeks to start a sub-label with Chips Moment and, and who helped found Stax and then went out and have created his own label called American Records in Memphis. Um, they were lured back in by Jim Stewart because his, because Estelle, his sister, said, you got to have these two guys back there. They, they're the only guys making hits for us. This is after Booker T and the MGs had sort of, you know, cooled off and uh, Rufus Thomas was, you know, sort of had it by then. Carla Thomas had a few hits, but then she would she kind of receded. They needed those two guys back. Uh, but the irony was, even though they were making so many hits, and they were keeping Atlantic there. I mean, with them, Atlantic was always seemingly looking for a way to to to, to dump out of that deal. But they were sending all their artists to stacks: Wilson Pickett and 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 Sam and Dave. You know. Um, Isaac was never paid well until he became a solo artist. He just never was. He lived in a like a like a like a two room flat with the first of his many wives, four wives, yeah. and his two kids. Didn't have a car. He had to bum a ride from Porter and Otis when Otis Redding when Otis came in from the ranch, you know, the, you know, to to Memphis. He he had no money, man. He he was he was like totally used. Uh, it wasn't until he became a star that he rewrote the record book for payments that that black producers, musicians, performing artists were getting. They, Stax through Al Bell, who came, who had come on, a black guy who had come on, he had been called in by by you know, by Stax to basically relate to the black artists because. Jim Stewart was basically just a producer and, you know, business guy. Al Bell, he, he basically discovered uh, Isaac as a, as a performer. And uh, he, he actually gave him a, an album to do with no notice. Basically, um, this was called Presenting Isaac Hayes in 1968. He just said, Isaac, go in the studio. 
go in the studio with Duck Dunn, uh, you know, and, and see what you guys can come up with. He had no, they they didn't combine for any songs or anything. They 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 covered you know uh, Muddy Waters and and Errol Gardner and BB King, and it didn't and didn't do anything. But if you go back and listen to that presenting Isaac Hayes, man, that's that's when soul music grew up, because he didn't just do another another soul man. He didn't do another another Sam and Dave kind of song because he could never sing like Sam and Dave. Nobody could. Yeah. And but he rewrote the book there on how to do black music. He he would he would cover pop songs and he he tear them apart to find the soul in them, the R and B, the soul, the jazz. And he put this together on that album. You gotta go, you gotta listen to this album. I mean, basically nobody ever did back then. He did it, he was totally drunk when he did it. He and Duck Dunn were totally drunk. You know, <laughs> they, they they were they were stoned out, drunk. They said, Okay, we'll go in the studio, we'll do something. And it didn't. It wasn't a hit. But Al Bell was such a genius uh, that he wanted to do more work with with Isaac as a solo, and he did. And it was from then on that what happened. You know, was, was history. The six gold albums and you know uh, Black Moses and Hot Butter. You know, all all those great albums. That's when he started becoming paid, and he got that famous or infamous, if you wish, gold Cadillac that El Dorado. Which is yeah, now. that was uh, that was one of the things I wanted to make sure that we talked about because of the fact that you were talking about, you know, earlier that he's one of the guys who did start to get paid. And so what does he do? So it's not just a Cadillac well, Eldorado. Uh, take, no. a, take a moment to really describe what this thing was. And <laughs> as uh, I was reading about it, I had made a note that uh, it was usually accompanied by a, a guard for when he wasn't <laughs> at the car because you couldn't just leave that thing parked on the street, could you? This thing was... I don't know how, what the final cost was. He put he put so much into it. It had <laughs> the windshield wipers were twenty four karat gold. Those were the rims <laughs> on the car. He had a he had an entertainment system in the back before anyone was doing that. TV, you know, TV and stereo. It was gold plated. I mean, I mean, the thing must have weighed. It must have been like a Russian tank. It was like gold. They found a place for it in the stacks parking lot, but they had to sequester it from all the others because people would come into the parking lot, take pictures of it and look and gawk at it. When, <laughs> when that thing rolled down the street in Memphis, you knew it was Isaac Hayes. You knew he was in there <laughs> and that he became like Memphis's, you know, he was the man in Memphis and people just gawked at this thing. And it's now the centerpiece of the stacks museum, the museum that was rebuilt a la Motown. Uh, on the original grounds of the old movie theater on East Le East Macklemore Street. This is what people come to see, the Isaac Hayes gold-plated El Dorado. Um, yeah. that I was, mean, that, I want to see it. I, I, didn't, I didn't know to take a trip to the uh, Stax <laughs> Museum the one time I was in Memphis, but uh, for the El Dorado, I would have definitely done it, you know? You know what? It was only one of his cars. He had about nine cars. He was like, oh, Otis did the same thing, Otis Redding. Uh, in fact, he sang on it in Tramp with Carla Thomas. He said, you know, I got four Cadillacs. I got four, I got four Mercedes. I got, you know. <laughs> and this was this was the template for a guy like Isaac Hayes, who was so poor growing up. He lived in cars. <laughs> he lived in like old junkers in a junkyard because he had no place to live. He, he, he was like 16 or 17. He dropped out of school. He went back to school because his grandmother forced him. You know, his parents were gone. He was brought up by his grandmother. He had nothing. He he worked in the in the, in the cotton fields with his with his grandfather. 
but he wanted to be a musician and he just you know this was in his head because he got he could get girls that way and he could that was his main focus growing up he wanted to get girls uh, which he rode to the the ultimate limit when he became an adult <laughs> you know i mean i think booker t told me he was that i isaac would see six women at once and two of them were roommates <laughs> so <laughs> yeah that was when That's he funny. was yeah, filthy rich i mean just because stacks was giving him everything man they were giving him like every penny he was making 25 percent royalties you know what you know what people get in royalties one percent yeah, I mean, yeah. and he was, actually was getting more than that because he was getting advances and he wouldn't have to pay for his sessions because stacks would pay for it. They would give him all kinds of they paid for homes for him. He had a home in L.A. He had a home in, in Atlanta. He had a home in Washington, D.C. He, he he went to Spain like on on a whim and he would he find he would live there for a year. Wow. This was like the ultimate dissipation. I mean, yeah, see, that's a it's a problem when you don't have the uh, you know when when you're sort of doing this in the era he did. You didn't have the benefit of one being able to watch the uh, the MC Hammer behind the music about how he <laughs> lost all of his money. Or there was a great uh, ESPN special. This is going back like ten years where uh, Herm Edwards would actually talk to young up and coming NFL players, and he's like, "You know how many cars you need? One." How many cars can you drive at a time? One. And he's trying to encourage them to not blow through their money because obviously that money's not guaranteed. And it does seem to be the thing that you hear about so many, you know, once you get some money, it's like, yeah, I think I probably need nine cars and six houses. I understand how well, you know, houses, but, but it's there's crazy. A big, there's a big hit. William, De, William Devon, you know, uh, diamond in the back, sun rooftop, digging <laughs> the scene with a gangster lean. That was about a Cadillac. You know, that was about a gold Cadillac. Right. That was the status symbol in Memphis. When, when stacks started reeling in the money, they mm -hmm. all had Cadillacs. They were, it was like a procession of Cadillacs down the street. And yet the and yet Al Bell, who was such a brilliant tactician, I mean, he got stacks into movies. He was the reason for for Shaft because he teamed up with with with, with MGM Pictures. He had te uh, teamed up with, um, on, on pictures before that approaching that level and broadway shows uh, and um but but he ran the company so badly he he just he money he he money went through his hands like water it was a he he would finance country artists to try to make a stacks you know a, a sort of a country soul label that didn't work out to him he he started richard pryor in the business he did yeah. a jesse jackson's gold selling album of, of speeches uh, that he actually had previewed at the Wattstacks Festival in LA, which was the Black Woodstock in 1972, yeah. which was built around Isaac Hayes. But Al Bell blew so much money, I mean, <laughs> that, that he just couldn't sustain a company that was actually right there with Motown in the early 70s. Stack started as Motown's stepchild, stepchild like a poor cousin. Yeah. But whatever Barry Gordy did, Al Bell did just as well. But Barry Gordy never threw away his money, which people who work for Barry Gordy will tell you. <laughs> you know, I did three Motown books. Sure. Parting with his money was like, you know, parting with parting with his soul. He never would give it up, which is why he's 93, 94 years old and living living large still. Yeah. Well, a lot of his, a lot of Motown people, like I did a book on the Temptations. A lot of those guys made nothing. You know, and uh, 
that's just the way it went in the business. But Al Bell, Al Bell was the reason. He he blew he blew so much money. He actually hired a gangster that he gave money to. This is part of the book too. It's a very interesting story. <laughs> Al Bell, because Stax was being berated and besieged by black uh, black you know uh, racial activists in the '60s, like the Black Panthers, but also Jesse Jackson was was trying to put the finger on them too. And he tried to put the finger on uh, on uh, Ahmed Erdogan in New York with Jerry Wexler. They were all trying to they were all trying to skim money from stacks. So in order to fight back, Al Bell hired this gangster named Johnny Baylor, who was actually a, um, um, a corner man for Sugar Ray Robinson. You know, he was he was a very well respected guy. He he uh, he, he had a record company of his own. He, he uh, owned Luther Luther Ingram, who later became went to Stax, another star. But Luther, but uh, Johnny Baylor was a gangster. He was with the mob in New York, and it, it turned into a much graver situation for Al Bell to pay him than to pay the Black Panthers, who used to you know come to the door and uh, give me give give us some money, because he stole money from Stax, which is the last thing Al Bell needed was to have more money taken out of the till. And he was living it. He was living in his own mansions, and you know, stealing money left and right. And he eventually got in trouble. He, he the IRS got wind of what what uh, Johnny Baylor was doing, took him to trial, convicted him, and from that point on, stacks went like, because they had they they, they had no money left to to finance acts. Least of all, Isaac Hayes, who they had to give his give a release to. After all those gold albums, he was, you know, Isaac was just starting. If you look back, he was just getting going after six gold albums. He wanted it. He wanted it. He was in movies. You know, he was in Truck Turner and, you know, these movies like Escape from New York later. You know, he was in. He's a good actor. And he wanted yeah. he wanted to parlay that that, you know, in, into his career. But he couldn't because Stax was 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 putting out soundtracks for those albums. And they went out of business when they couldn't put the soundtrack album out. So everything went south all at once. And guess who owed $6 million to, in bankruptcy? Isaac Hayes and his wife yeah. in 1960, 1974, I think. He went totally broke. All those cars meant nothing. They yeah. all were put up for auction. People, people were invited by the IRS and his and his debtor his creditors to come to his mansion and buy whatever they saw <laughs> you know right. and 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 he had obviously won an oscar for shaft yes, and he he'd given it to his grandmother right but mm -hmm. at some point somebody else ends up with that even you know the oscar his oscar is like a, as well as the as the cars like the like stories in themselves the, yeah. the the long winding roads they took because in order to and you know he he had to buy back the uh, the Oscar and the car, and had to you know he had to pay even more for that. And he gave it to his grandmother Rurushia, uh to to keep the Oscar. And then when she died, he gave it to Al Bell, the worst guy in the world <laughs> to give it to. <laughs> yeah. So the IRS took possession of that thing, and sold it again. I mean, it was like just. He was going through so much crap, and and his own his own very bad investments. This too was Al Bell. Al Bell had gotten a an investment firm um, to be affiliated with Stacks, 
and they told uh, Isaac, you know, we, we got this great property here. We know we'll, we'll invest it for you. And, you know, of course, that was a joke. So he lost every cent that he invested. And he was $6 million in debt. This guy who owned the world was $6 million. And he had no place to go. He had signed with ABC Records after Stax gave him his release. It didn't work. Uh, the chemistry wasn't right. And so he was sort of like a nomad. This was from like about... 76 on through the through the 80s there were a, there were a lot of years when nobody knew where Isaac Hayes was yeah that was the interesting thing as I was reading through it and you know as I was reading your book uh, I started listening to stuff that I had never heard before like you know he has uh, the the Glenn Campbell song by the time I get to Phoenix I oh think yeah is the song I think of and his I, I I know the Glenn Campbell song very well but listening to what Isaac Hayes would do with a song like that and just sort of like the ramp up you know which sometimes you know you'll see musicians who do that live but just I guess he called them he called them raps it's not rap the way people think of right. but just sort of the conversation that leads into these songs it's like it's it's fascinating to listen to and just sort of the way that you know look I, I we've all heard covers that uh completely reinterpret you know all along the watchtower being a you know pretty good example mm -hmm. but it's just it's so different and yeah so as as i'm reading the book and as i'm sort of listening to some of this stuff that i've never heard it does get to that point in the mid-70s where you're just like oh it all kind of stops because of bad business not because i mean i, I assume that the albums were still selling well enough yeah. That if the if the record label hadn't gone under, he could have still, you know, I mean, so he really kind of isn't a part of disco, right? I mean, because he's sort of like without a home. I mean, it's a little bit, but he doesn't put out a lot of albums in the late 70s, right? That was uh, sort of walking on eggshells for him, you know, and Bill Withers had to do it, too. Yeah. Because disco took over the culture so, so intensely. You had to, you had to do, you had to get into the disco market and yeah, let's I mean, face even, it, even yeah. the even the rolling stones and kiss had oh, that disco I mean, songs, you know so yeah BGs, i mean you had yeah. to get into i mean the four seasons reunited to do a disco song <laughs> the hell's that i grew up <laughs> with those guys doing you know ragdoll and you know walk like a man and all of a sudden i was in there walking like you know john travolta in saturday night fever <laughs> right. but uh, but it's funny you say that you know you mentioned these covers that he did of these the pop songs you know, Burt Bacharach songs and Jimmy Webb songs. He tore them apart. I mean, he, he just made new songs out of them. And those covers I was telling you about before, the samples, there were a lot done of those uh, walk on by and by the time I get to Phoenix. But in his in his iterations of right, them, sure. not Glenn Campbell or Dion Warwick, who basically also he wrote a hit song, Deja Vu, Deja Vu later in the 80s um, when he got together with her for like a one-shot one thing. But he got into disco, but it's very interesting listening to his disco songs because his disco songs are almost like a protest against the disco songs. They were like, you know, almost parodies. Um, later on, he put out a disco album that was entirely a parody. And he put, it was a video he did um, about disco that was a parody. I think that was his way of saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to, you know, try to meld into this culture. But don't don't take it too seriously because I don't. And but let's face it, I mean, Shaft is a disco song. I mean, you got, yeah. you got the wah wah guitar, you got the sixteenth notes on the hi hat, but played by Willie Hall. You know, you got the Skip Pitts guitar, the the wah wah, and the you know, 
those those were elements of and this is before disco really hit like 71 shaft yeah this is before it hit this is the elements that the disco artists used uh, you know they used they used a lot of that stuff in philly the gamble and huff crowd in philly international when they put together their own band the mfsb orchestra and they used it basically they copied hayes's stuff the way he put together that that because it's it, all of his songs were danceable i mean that that goes without saying he, he didn't he didn't do like ballads that you would do a waltz to you know what i'm saying he yeah. he, he was all get up and dance so he had a great influence on it which is why they copied so you know sampled so much of it but he never got into disco and there was there's not really an isaac Hayes disco song that i would would recommend anybody listen to i would recommend rather that they listen to presenting isaac hayes than that you know he's covering misty you right, know, and that's naked. that's the first one that you referenced. Yeah, the one that, the one they did days. totally drunk when they sent them into the studio yeah. with Doug John and said, "Let's have an album." I love uh, that. I love that album. You know, and uh, yeah, I well, I want to talk about uh, Shaft for a moment because yeah. uh, you know uh, I I had a fascination with Shaft in the early '90s because of the fact that. Uh, as you mentioned in the book, it's not a particularly good movie, but <laughs> with that music, I just I can't imagine what that movie would be like if it just had, you know, some generic songs from what, 1971. You know, if it didn't have that score and that song, I mean, the sequence where you know, Richard Roundtree's walking through, you know, a, a Times Square of a de very different era uh, and <laughs> just set to that music. And it's like, it's fascinating. I actually, I actually showed it in a film class when I was in college because we were trying to make a point of, you know, just things that writing, you know, that a script could never actually convey and here, like, look at this sequence. And it's like, yeah, it's just like the music makes that, you know, like the guy trying to sell him a watch. Like I haven't seen it in years and so much of it sticks with me because, you know, it's just, and it really sets the tone for like, yeah, this guy, this guy is really cool. And then, you know, the, the, the story in and of itself is fine, but um, what do you think Isaac felt about his legacy about that movie? And was it business that he didn't want to do the sequels or did, because you feel like he could have used the money from what you're saying to do Not Shaft's that. big score and Shaft in Africa, you know, but at that point he, he didn't need it because he, he was being given yeah. money to do scores for other movies. I yeah, thought, I, I, th I thought that was a great, uh, you know, a great thing to do on his part to reject easy money like that. Yeah. I mean, he could have gone into Shaft in Africa as you see <laughs> Shaft, shaft down the street, shaft, you know, shaft at the tailors. I mean, he could have, he could have done any of those things. He never did. You know, he just never wanted to copy himself. He wanted to keep moving forward until later on. You know, one of the last things in his life was when he, when he did, uh, you know, when they used shaft music and what shaft 80 or shaft 90 well, they did because they did the yeah. Sam Jackson shaft Samuel 2000 Jackson, is yeah. the official name of that, and then. Reading your book, I'm like, I forgot that there was like a Netflix shaft in like 2015. <laughs> I actually didn't even remember that. A lot so, of people you know, forgot. I'd that. gotten shaft out of my system by 2015. You know, I had kids. I didn't have time to you know keep track of. Well, uh, you know whatever. what? You know what shocked me? He could have done Superfly. He was offered Superfly oh. by Gordon Parks, who directed, produced, and directed Shaft. Right. He wanted he wanted Isaac Hayes to do what Curtis Mayfield did, and. By not doing it, he opened the door to Curtis Mayfield. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's those two albums. They're just like one in one A. Yeah. 
You know, I mean, that that was soul music that everybody wanted to do in 1971, 72. But right, he never did. The only the only remake, the only I wouldn't even call it a remake. I call it like an add on or something that was ever done was by the Barkays who did Son, a song, a song called Son of Shaft in 1973, when which made no sense because Shaft would have been just two years older than he was, and yeah. you know when he when he when he had the movie, the original movie, and I don't know, and they didn't credit Isaac on that, and the bar, and, and Isaac used to take the the Barcases on tour a lot, you know, he used to he used to, you know, he produced albums for them, and they did the Son of Chef, which was, I don't know if you ever heard it, it's, it's just a disaster, it's basically the same beat, but with crazy lyrics about. Shaft's son growing up and being a crime fighter, you know, and it's just an abomination. And, and you know, he could have done that himself. He could have just yeah. done Son of Shaft, but he never did. I, I think it's great. The last Shaft movie, the, the 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 last one in the series, and I hope it's the last one ever. They actually use the original Shaft uh, at the end. Remember when they're walking through um, by the Grand Central Station, the three of them. Yeah, Richard Roundtree and Samuel Jackson and the other one, you know, a new one, yeah. Stri striding through it the way Richard Roundtree did, as you described at Times Square, one of the great opening scenes in movie history. Yeah, and it just that's the only time you actually felt something for that movie, the last movie. I don't even know what was it called, Son of Shaft, Son. I mean, uh, Son of Shaft's <laughs> grandson, whatever. You know, that was the only time you actually felt the original. You know the, the 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 bang of the first the original shaft. I still hear that song, and it's fifty years, man. It's fifty years, fifty one years. I still hear that song, and I got I got to hear it all the way through. It's yeah, just something about it. It's just I something. definitely agree with that. And yeah, he added those sure. lyrics to win an Oscar. You know, the lyrics. You want to call them lyrics? The, you know the the the, the garrulous uh, lines at the end of the song. You know, it was a bad mother, and you know, yeah, shut your well, mouth. You well, know. Yeah, and I, I love the the sort of the, basically a footnote, but that uh, the actress Telma Hopkins basically yeah, built a career right. out of having said "shut your mouth." You know, she was on like Bosom Buddies and a bunch of other shows you, <laughs> because it was like, right. hey, yeah. "You are correct." <laughs> so, and it was like, I was like, I don't think I ever knew that that was her. And that was uh, her. You know, yeah. So, it would as as you look at Isaac Hayes, you know, his career as a whole. Uh, I think it's important to talk about. You know, yes, he had all this money coming in and I it seems like, you know, he might have had a couple of bad people in his ear. I'm talking pre uh, Scientology, but he was very well intentioned in terms of the activism and the amount of charity yeah. performances he would do and things like that. I mean, you mentioned he had a home in Washington, D.C. So the understanding is that that was because of just how involved he actually was instead of saying, you know, instead of just throwing money at it, he actually seemed to really be invested. True. Yeah. Actually, I, I should probably append that he too fell in with Johnny Baylor, and that cost him money too, because he bought all of Johnny's BS, you know, and that oh, sure. he had a fall falling out with Dave Porter, which can, can hardly be believed, you know, because they were so close and wrote so many great songs. Um, he he bought into the fact that he was better than anybody else at Stacks, and that that was the curse, that was the kiss of death for him, you know. But he did have that place in Washington, and he had a, he had. A, he went, he had a place in LA because he had to be in LA. I mean, he had to have a place in LA. And he actually married uh, his 
third wife, uh, third wife there, Mignon out there, after recording his live in Las Vegas album, another album that everyone should listen to. It's an astounding live album. You know, it's like Bill Withers' uh, album at the Carnegie Hall. It's like the, a must-have album. Well, all covers, a few originals, but mostly all covers. And he was still doing what he was doing, you know, with Hot Buttered Soul, taking these great soul songs. And he knew, a, he knew a great song when he heard it. He was a student of, of music. So that's why he loved Burt Bacharach. And he loved Jimmy Webb. And, he, you know, he loved the great songwriters because he knew it opened up fertile territory for himself, too. And uh, he was still doing that with that Live in Vegas album. But that was when he hit the skids, you know, uh, financially. The movie thing didn't really pan out. And what, what I said before, for like a decade and a half, he was sort of like a missing person. And I think he lived in Europe for quite a while. He lived in Europe for a few years. Uh, and, D and Duck Dunn was very, he was very pissed off at it because they were going to go back. They were, after the Blues Brothers did Soul Man, they were going to get together the, the original musicians who, you know, were with Isaac uh, in the early Stax years, you know, that, the, book, the Booker T and the MGs, you know, Steve Cropper and, and that gang. And they were going to go tour as the, the Soul Man, the original yeah. Soul Man. What a great idea, right? But they couldn't find Isaac. <laughs> what a great idea that was. Here we are, the original Soul Man. You know, because by then they were all Hall of Fame. I mean, material, all those guys, Al Jackson Jr., you know, who unfortunately was murdered in a very unfortunate, uh, you know, side sidebar there. But yeah. they couldn't find Ike. They just couldn't find him. He, he was going through a lot of men. There were rumors that, you know, the CIA had gotten to him, <laughs> that wow. he was like on a secret mission somewhere or he was a drug runner, you know, because they couldn't find him. They didn't. His own children didn't know where where he was. His, you know, which is why he was sent to jail for a little while for not paying child support. <laughs> you know, he, he was a he was a man and he was a lot. He was just lost. He was, so, he was a man who was lost because of the bad contracts that you referenced earlier. When the Blues Brothers have that hit with Soul Man, does he not get any financial gain from that? Because you know, basically, he, he he just didn't really see any of that, right? He got. There was a, an arrangement made for that because that, you know, that, that was the whole thing where they had to they had to go through not only Atlantic to, you know, to, to get the rights to it. They had to get the uh, TV, you know, TV permissions and stuff. Right, I think sure. they cut a, cut a little bit of a, a royalty deal with him. Through the years, he would get these little perks, you know, um, the people who owned Atlantic. With, I was Sony, but you know, it was a giant corporation. Eventually, um, they did give him back a, a few of his rights, but he never oh, okay. got. In fact, when he when he when he gave his speech at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the theme of the speech was how he was screwed, and I don't blame him because he's sitting and he's sitting he's standing there with hundreds of people who are like filthy filthy rich in the in the in the industry, you know, drinking their martinis at the tables, you know in their tuxedos yeah. and here he is doesn't even own rights to shaft i mean what the hell is that about? you know that that was and that wasn't even atlantic that was after atlantic when paramount and gulf and western owned it. there were so many people who took advantage of him and stacks that it's just incredible <laughs> yeah so i did notice that that yeah there's like a timeline of like different corporations taking advantage it, of it, different bad it, deals it, that had been made yeah it's not but he never he did get back he did get back some 
the way Bill Withers well, and, and you know got back some through Michael Jackson actually. But um, no, he never got back what he really deserved, and he always was bitter. But he made enough. You know, he can't. But he had that. He had that little period there with Dionne Warwick, and you know, he he would he would do a, he would do TV, did a lot of movie the Rock, uh, TV shows, the Rockford Files, the A Team. He and he and Mr. T, what a, what a pair, right? And uh, probably one <laughs> yeah. of the greatest moments in that in that show's history. You 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 do reference that in the book, and uh, that sort yeah. of like in the notes I made was uh, look for the episode of the A Team with Isaac Hayes because I want to see him and Mr. T uh, oh, interacting together. <laughs> great conversation. It's like you know the, they they got them right. The writers got it got it correctly. So it, 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 and then he did a he did a duet with Barry White, which, you know, people wanted him to do in 1974. And he, he yeah. refused because both of those guys refused that. They thought they were better than the other guy. But that's how, you know, and Barry had fallen on hard times as well. So they had to do that. And it was, a, didn't, it wasn't a big hit. It's called Dark and Lovely. Yeah, it's a, it, it, I was reading that. It's surprising that uh, you're right. They didn't definitely work. didn't do it at the right moment. If they had done it, you know, in the 70s, uh, that would have been something. So uh, uh, as you're sort of looking, you know, as I was saying, when you put the whole book together, you're able to really examine his whole career. Uh, what do you think the legacy of Isaac Hayes is? I mean, uh, there's individual things that you can point to. You can point to the highs. And, you know, as I said, I knew him from Shaft and South Park predominantly. And uh, so that's why I appreciated filling in a lot of these details. But as you look at him sort of career wise as a whole, what it, what did you feel like is the legacy of like, well, I'm glad I wrote this book because this is what people <clears throat> should really know yeah. about this guy. Yeah. As I said before, um, I really consider him the the leading edge of the, when soul became mainstream. Soul was great in the fifties and sixties. You know, it was a lot of great records, but they were offshoots of the main industry, which is why they never got they never could get a, a nomination for popular the popular uh, music awards at the Grammys. It was always an R and B. He changed that. When he won his Oscar, man, he changed everything. I mean, he was only the third African-American to win an Oscar and the first mu music guy to win an Oscar. It had been Sidney Poitier and Hattie McDaniel before yeah. that, you know? And so, and I, 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 I put it in the book because I really enjoyed it. The, the performance he did of Shaft at the Oscars <laughs> in 1972, when he came, he actually opened the show Sammy Davis brought him on, you know, and he did this thing that nobody had ever seen at an Oscar before. You know, they were all they were they were wiggling and jiggling in the in the disco costumes and all that. And there's Isaac with the chains and the bare chest, <laughs> and he did Shaft. And I love that moment because you could actually point to that as the mo one of the moments when when black music became mainstream music, and everybody wanted to sound black. We went, you know, we were talking before about, you know, the Bee Gees and all these, you know, all sure, groups that yeah. try to sound black. There were, there were tons of them. And this is, and I really give him credit because he did something nobody else did. Oh, there were a tremendous, I mean, Marvin Gaines, Stevie Wonder alone are, you know, worthy of that honor if you want to credit them with that. But what Isaac did was he took music into a direction nobody had ever taken it before. He took pop songs and he made them soul songs. And not only that, he, he pioneered rap, which he said before was true. He didn't consider rap in the way it's considered now because he didn't sing, he didn't go through a whole song 
of rap. It would it would be integrated into the song as a as a mood changer. You know, he called Ike's moods. He would tack on to a pop song a little tidbit called Ike's Mood One, Ike's Mood Two, and that, that would carry on through the albums. And the and he would talk about his life. He would talk about his 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 divorces. His talk about his cheating. Yeah. He would be proud of it. One one song, and then he would say there was another song called "I Apologize." where he apologized for all the adultery in his life. So he would he would go from like mood to mood to mood. And you have to, it's sort of almost like uh, Pink Floyd. You have to listen to the whole album to understand where he's coming from. You know, like one song would end and he, the next one would pick up where he left off and you'd have to follow along. And you, it would, you know, that's what he was saying. And no, nobody had ever done that in soul music before. Soul music was basically a dance groove, you know, uh, torch songs, emotional, ex excellent. You know, I mean, Ike and Tina Turner. I mean, you, who could be better than that when they were making their hit, their R and B in the fifties and early sixties? But what what Ike did, nobody did then, and nobody's done since. I mean, so if you want to argue, if somebody wants to argue with me, tell me how somebody has done what has, even though they've sampled him, they've not. They've not gotten, they've not nailed the moods, the many moods of Ike. No, and I think that was the interesting thing as, as I, I listened to a lot of these, uh, you know, a lot of these covers that he would do, that he would really take songs that, you know, you think of a, a certain way. A good example would be uh, You've Lost That Loving Feeling and oh, yeah. uh, even Summer in the City, which seems like it was a little bit later, but it's like, you just don't think of them and like taking the time to put a personal stamp on it is is, is pretty great. And I yeah, didn't even, so yeah, I've got a. I'm sorry, I, I was gonna. Yeah, I didn't even yeah. know he 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 covered "Use Me" the Bill Withers song. I didn't even even know that until I wrote the book. Right. So he would yeah. he would reach out all over, you know, for for a great yeah. song. No, there's yeah. So there's so much, you know, as I said to listen to. It's not just that I want to see a scene with him and Mr. T on the A team. You know, there's like <laughs> there's so much that I'm like, yeah, I, I hadn't heard much of this. So if nothing else, uh, for me, you know, it's like I got a little bit of an insight to to the two things I did know. And as I said, when I first started talking to you, that uh, I really did not understand the the end of the South Park situation until I read your book. So I was like, oh, I was really glad that I had a better handle on it. But uh, just, so, you know, so much of his career and I just, uh, you know, wasn't aware of it. So uh, that's why I, I hope that people take the time to read uh, Black Moses, The Hot Buttered Life and Soul of Isaac Hayes. Uh, we've been talking to Mark Robowski. Now you said uh, Bill Withers is up next. Uh, well, uh, yeah, so, next year, probably, you know, sometime year. next year. I'll see yeah. you then. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Yeah, I look forward to that's to a story. That's and... a great story too of a guy who just walked away from the business. You know, that's a great story. Yeah, a lot I mean, of a it... lot of a badness, a badness about the industry there too. You a, know, a, so. a lot of us can't understand sometimes those stories of people who walk away from the business, or you know, people whose careers, uh, you know, could have gone in a different direction. You know, like like Dave Chappelle leaving fifty million dollars on the table because <laughs> he didn't want to do Chappelle Show anymore. You know, so, I mean, it's uh, you, you have all these things that are like, oh, wow. OK, so so money is very important, but you do have those people who are like, you know what? I don't need any more of it. I've got enough. Uh, but uh, so, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd like to do I'm, I may do a book on Bobby Womack. And then you talk about somebody who was, you know, screwed, but also left a mark on the business. These are guys who are just sort of ignored now. This is where we started this interview. Yeah. These are guys who are ignored now. And that's a crime. That's a real crime. You know, I mean, they were given their due late in life. 
they made you know the Hall of Fame, and you know when they died, uh, they, they certainly were, were revered. But you're talking about people who shaped an industry, and it, it's uh, it's my theory that there would never have been a civil rights movement without music to back it up. I always go back. To, I always go back to when Martin Luther King did his March on Washington in 1963. The number one song in the country was Stevie Wonder's "Fingertips Part One," and I always made that connection because they were singing it at at the march. I always made the connection that there was there had to be a background feel provided by popular music for any movement to succeed. And if you look at the civil rights movement, I mean, Martin Luther King was killed in Memphis. Isaac was going to meet him that very day because he was at the Lorraine, the Lorraine Motel, which is where Stack sent its writers to go to get away from the, the theater, you know, that atmosphere and be, you know, just surround themselves with, with their own thoughts in a room in, in the Lorraine Motel. And uh, when he was when Martin Luther King was killed, Isaac Hayes couldn't write for a year. He had he had writer's block. You know, that's how invested he was in the movement. He yeah. would. After, when there were riots on the streets in Memphis after the assassination, Isaac Hayes came out alone without bodyguards and would, t would try to get the gangs off the streets because he knew the white cops were out there waiting to bust them and, and worse. The cops come into the Stacks parking lot and arrest the black performers and leave Duck Dunn and Steve Cropper alone. You talk about Memphis in the 60s. It was a horrible place for African-Americans. You know, yeah, it's not much I mean, better today, by the way. And um, yeah, and specifically to, reading in the, the aftermath of, uh, you know, Dr. King's assassination. I remember reading the book. It was like very clear that Isaac was out there saying they're just looking for an excuse to, exactly. you know, arrest you or worse. And he, and, he was know, in great danger himself. And but yeah. he put on a concert, you know, that was the, the mayor and the police chief all tried to put the kibosh on. But he, he saw it through. That was Isaac. When he had it in his mind to do something, he would do it. Um, and that includes music. Because when he got Soul Man in his head watching on TV the Detroit riots in 67, you know, he, he turned the tragedy into a great achievement for, for, you know, for race and for black performers. And because he got it in his head, he wanted to do that. And he, he had a way of doing it. He would just go in the studio with an idea, never a, never really a complete sheet of music. And he would just sit down at the piano and start. And Sam and Dave hated him for that, especially <laughs> Sam Moore. I mean, he Sam hated him. He puts us through all this crap. We just want to go in and sing. And yet later on, you know, he said, we went, after they left Stax, they never had a hit again. And he said, we really miss Isaac yeah, Hayes, I, I thought that was, yeah, because in the early part of the book, it, it is, I think you're right, it, yeah. obviously you're right, Sam in particular was really, you know, how he felt about him, but they clearly under, they appreciated what he sort of put them through, you know, and uh, you hear that a lot, you know, bands that start out, you know, any kind of performer that starts out, you know, the, the producer that really puts them through the ringer, and, you know, they 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 hate you know the the Eddie Kramers and the Bob Ezrins, but they then end up putting out like their best albums, and they were like, oh yeah, we actually needed that at that point in our career. So it's uh, oh, he, yeah, it's he let them sing too. He didn't go in with he, he at Stacks. They didn't do the uh, adding the vocals later because they yeah. they weren't working with a lot of tracks, you know, and they wanted the live feel anyway. The studio there with the low ceiling and the and the, and the big curtains, you know, from because it was a movie theater. 
made the sound so perfect that they used the bathroom as an echo chamber. But they were they would just say, sing with the music. We're not going to, we don't want you to put it on later with wearing headphones. We want you to sing as you would in a club. And that's why Sam and Dave came through. So, I mean, you could feel every, every syllable and Wilson Pickett, you know, you could really feel that, that, that graze of soul, you know, and he let them do that. He was, he was a brilliant producer, writer, and, and performer. And I hope the book gives him some due. I hope he gets some due from it because he, he deserves it. Yeah, no, he definitely deserves it. And, uh, you know, it's uh, even someone who had, you know, a very casual, limited understanding of him, you know, just able to sit down and just really come away with a greater appreciation. So hopefully that is uh, what happens to uh, everybody who uh, takes the time to pick out the book. And I'll mention one more time. Black Moses, The Hot Buttered Life and Soul of Isaac Hayes. Mark Grabowski, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me. I really enjoyed the conversation. And as you said, I, I look forward to uh, talking Bill Withers with you sometime next year. <laughs> That'd be great. My pleasure. It makes me just feel Bladcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Bladcast. That's B-L-A-D-T-C-A-S-T. You can also subscribe to the audio version wherever podcasts are found. Like The Bladcast on Facebook, follow at Bladcast on Twitter and Instagram, and of course, the man responsible for what you just heard is on Twitter and Instagram at ChristianDMZ. I'm Farad Muhammad, and if you want me to voice your podcast intro, you can find me at Twitter and Instagram at F-A-R-D- M-U-H-A-M-M-A-D. We will see you next time on the Bladcast. Jim Stewart, who started it with his sister Estelle Axton in the late 50s as a country label, he had been a he had been a, he, a banker, but he didn't know. Oh, looks like uh, we lost Mark for a moment there. Uh sort of mid-sentence uh there, and uh we'll Give him a moment to come back. We're uh, speaking with Mark Rabowski, and the book we're talking about is Black Moses, The Hot Buttered Life and Soul of Isaac Hayes. And uh, he had a little bit of a, of a hiccup there, which is uh, the problem with when you do these kind of interviews like this, you know, over uh, the Internet and, and sometimes phone lines and, and that sort of a thing. But, uh, you know, there's a there's a lot in this book that uh, I, like I was explaining to Mark that I was able to take away and uh, we, we hope we get him back momentarily so that we can continue the conversation. Uh, that was a little bit of a, a little bit of a hiccup in there, but uh, you know, and just reading this book about how much he was involved with artists like Sam and Dave and how much, Isaac Hayes long before he did any singing. And it's so funny to think about having this guy off in the back who's 
playing piano. And interestingly, he didn't even know how to play piano when he got hired to do it. So he was just kind of off there in the distance, uh, you know, sitting there in the background, not getting the opportunity to sing. But, uh, you know, he and uh, Porter were really this writing team that was responsible for so much of the Stax music that uh, that came out. And, uh, you know, there's a, a, a lot of interesting stuff there in terms of how Stax was tied in to the the politics i mean obviously of the mid to late 60s there's a there's really a lot in this book uh and you know as i had mentioned to mark what i knew a fair amount about was the fact that he had done the soundtrack to shaft and even that has uh, a lot of stuff in there that uh, i was unaware of you know so there's a my favorite thing about him though is uh he had this you know, and this is 1970s dollars. He had this uh, $26,000 Cadillac Eldorado. You know, Mark was referencing how he was like the one guy that seemingly made any money uh, from recording in this era. And uh, it was just this, this like gold car. I would uh, hopefully we get Mark back so I can ask him to describe it. But there was a uniformed, a uniformed guard that usually sat with it. And, uh, you know, it's uh, definitely interesting to think about the fact that, uh, you know, <laughs> there were all these people getting screwed out of money, but he had basically a, a gold Cadillac, not to be confused with the the pink Cadillac uh, from the the uh, song of the same name. Uh, little things that I was able to take away from the book were the fact that, uh, you know, Mark referenced Otis Redding. And uh, it, it was funny to hear that uh, he hated the Aretha Franklin cover of Respect because it had that part, that, you know, where it goes, sock it to me, sock it to me, sock it to me. But that version became so popular, he actually had to start doing that version of the song because <laughs> people are like, well, we're expecting to hear the sock it to me part and we're not hearing it. So, uh, you know, he, he couldn't get away with playing it. And it's interesting, you know, when somebody still does a song that they're known for, but uh, somebody else uh, ends up, you know, becoming the, uh, the more popular version of it, as it were. Um, yeah, so I can't recommend this book enough for people who have any kind of interest in somebody like Isaac Hayes. I really found it to be, uh, you know, just fascinating. I mean, the uh, sort of the interesting thing, look, I'm not here to weigh in on Scientology, but sort of the interesting way in which it kind of came into his life and really sort of like took over. Uh, it's it's very sad to read about. Um, I'm, uh, of course, making no disparaging comments about any organization just sort of reading the uh, fact of the way it, uh, it 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 impacted Isaac Hayes' life, and as a, I as I've said a few times, the book by Mark Lebowski, Black Moses: The Hot Buttered Life and Soul of Isaac Hayes, is uh, it's a great read, and uh, if you have any interest in the history of the record industry, the recording industry, I mean, if even if you just like some of the music from Stax Records from back in the day. Uh, you're going to learn a lot about it. Uh, you know, little things that I took away included things like, uh, I think, uh, uh, I think it was that, uh, Wilson Pickett was an asshole. Uh, <laughs> Otis Redding was, uh, not the, the most warm and lovable guy. So yeah, that's what I would say. 
is, uh, you know, there's a lot of great takeaways from the book. And uh, if we're able to reconnect with Mark at some point, we'll talk more about it uh, another time. But I do appreciate him having some time to talk to us about the book. Have you heard me say it yet? Why, yes. Yes, you have. Uh, we are always interested in making sure that our guests uh, are at least known for what it is that uh, they came on to discuss. And that book is entitled Black Moses, The Hot Buttered Life and Soul of Isaac Hayes. And the author is Mark Robowski. He has a number of really fascinating subjects of books that uh, I would be interested in talking to him about another time, uh, including Al Davis of the Oakland currently Las Vegas Raiders. Uh, but uh, if we're able to reconnect with Mark sometime, we'll uh, continue the conversation. But if not, uh, I hope that it piqued your interest and you check out the book. Thanks so much to Mark Grabowski and thanks for all of you for checking this out. We'll uh, see you soon here on the Blackcast. Uh, continuing our conversation with Mark Grabowski, he has this great book, Black Moses, The Hot Buttered Life and Soul of Isaac Hayes. Uh, we got disconnected, Mark, and uh, you were in the middle of something that I was yes, very interested did. in, but it was a few minutes ago. So now I actually kind of forget where we were in the story. I think I do remember. Okay, great. <laughs> Uh, I was talking about how Isaac Hayes. <laughs>